0: This is the EWN Podcast Network.
1: Are you ready to live your life by your rules? Need some inspiration? Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success. The podcast that brings you interviews with people who have had their life path challenged and have redefined what success in a first class life really means to them. With tales of roads taken, detours explored, turning points, and transformation, here is your host, First Class Life mentor, Kate Fessler.
2: Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today my guest is best-selling author Dave Nassani, a caregiving expert who speaks about how to deal with burnout, survive the grief process, and remain positive, even when you just want to quit. Dave is a passionate, articulate speaker who hosts a caregiver radio talk show podcast videocast on 14 different global media platforms. Dave also hosts a syndicated radio show, The Caregiver Dave Show, on the HealthyLife.net network, heard in all 50 states and 135 countries. Dave is a member of Toastmasters International, a life coach to caregivers, and a bestselling international author. Dave's very comfortable speaking in front of large audiences and interviewing celebrities on television, radio, or in person, whether it's Suzanne Summers, Caitlyn Jenner, yes, that Caitlyn, Dean Cain, or even as a counselor on Christian television. He's written several books and articles. Dave's number one bestselling book was released in September 2017, entitled It's My Life Too, Reclaim Your Caregiver Sanity by Learning When to Say Yes and When to Say No. Dave's an expert in his field of family caregiving. He's very funny, entertaining, and unforgettable (laughs) as he shares his positive, encouraging message of overcoming adversities and obstacles to any audience, especially caregivers. He speaks from the heart to those who most need to hear his message of how to avoid burnout and survive the grief process while remembering to never lose hope. Welcome, Dave.
0: Oh my gosh, I should have gone for the short bio. Did I write all of that?
2: <laughs> well, somebody did. I, don't know.
0: <laughs> I was just saying as you were reading it, please stop, please stop, please stop.
2: Oh, <laughs> Too long, too long, no, too long. Don't be modest. You have lots <laughs> of things that we need to talk about. So let's go way back. Start at the beginning. Wow. What did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a kid, did you have a vision of what your might, life might look like?
0: I know that's a very common question, and I don't know if anyone has ever asked me that question, so I have to think for a moment. What did I want to be when I grew up? (sighs) You mean besides the usual astronaut and fireman and uh, G.I. Joe and all that stuff? President of the
2: United States, yeah, exactly. No,
0: I did want to be president of the United States. It must have been in my subconscious, because when that movie came out, Dave... Oh,
2: yes, I, I remember that.
0: I just remember saying... I could do that. I could do that so good. I could be such a great president. And so I'll, I'll pick that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, so far you haven't done that one. We'll see. I don't know if that's <laughs> well, in your plans. Do you, know, you want to make an six- announcement here today?
0: <laughs> I'm only 65, and if Trump can get elected, anybody can get elected. My gosh.
2: There you go. Well, what was your first job?
0: Um, I've been in the gas station business all my life. In fact, my father was in the gas station business. I He put me to work. I don't even remember how old, but I was at least 12 and maybe younger. And I was. Uh, he taught me how to fix cars. And I used to go to school with grease under my fingernails and in my crevices of my fingerprints. And everybody used to make fun of me. They called me a grease monkey, I think it was. Mm. And I remember when I was about, 16, and maybe 17, because I was driving, uh, I said, you know, Dad, I want to get another job. Uh, It's not that I don't like this job, and I don't appreciate that you don't pay me unless I actually need money, and you just give me the money I need. (laughs) I want to see if I can really hold a job in the real world. So he says, go ahead. I said, okay, great. So I looked in the paper, found a job, For uh, It sounded like a real official corporation, Scott and Fetzer Corporation Needs Associates. So I applied, and my gosh, uh, they make the Kirby vacuum cleaner. And my job was to (laughs) give a case of free Shasta Cola to a house family if they let me come in and demonstrate a, uh, a vacuum cleaner demonstration. Wow. And in those days, this vacuum cost like 150 bucks. Uh, today, it costs over a thousand. So they will tell you, it's a very expensive vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And they trained us to just go and get their vacuum cleaner, which was usually a piece of junk. And you you vacuum the doorway, which is the worst place for dirt, because all you know that's where everybody wipes their feet, and it just goes down into the nap, sand mm. and stuff. And to take their vacuum cleaner and to, to vacuum that doorway right there for like an unusually long amount of time, like 20 sweeps, just boom, 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 boom. It says, okay, then I'll take my Kirby vacuum cleaner, which I put a special thing on. I turn it on for five seconds. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. And it pulls up all of this dirt. And I pull out the the little piece of cloth that the dirt's on and I just lay it there on the... And then I go down the traffic way, I do the same thing there. By the time I leave, I've got li- these little... Uh, tissues of of dirt just all over their place, and then I say, well, "Where's your bed?" So I go upstairs, I pull the sheets off the bed, I do the thing, and I pull up all the dead skin on their bed, and I start putting those things all over the bed. Time, <laughs> uh, it was time for me to leave. They're looking at all this dirt because they thought they lived in a clean house, and they gladly give me one hundred fifty dollars for that for that vacuum cleaner. And I sold I sold a few vacuums, but wow. it was hard work. Yeah, and after two months. I was proud of myself I did it I went back to my dad and I said you know what I just want to see if I could do it I'll come back to work for you because it was easy working for him <laughs> so that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it today I'm in the gas station business I'm the only one left alive in my family of relatives we had a lot of relatives in the business I'm the only one left and I, I still have a gas station up in Castaic Lake California been there 40 years and I do very well there and uh, I'm very happy
2: Wow, but you're not still pumping gas, are you?
0: No, I have people to do that. But I, you know, I am the kind of boss who will pump gas if I have to, even though the full service doesn't exist anymore. So well, I pump my own gas. But I, it's doing the register. I like to do the register every now and then because I like to feel what my cashiers go through because it helps me implement policies that help them to not burn out because it's very hard dealing with the public in general because you get every swath of uh, racial, uh, economic, um, geographical. We live on uh, the stations on the highway, and so uh, people from all over the world come to our station because they travel, and then they travel from San Francisco down to San Diego, and they stop at our station because there's nowhere else to go. Twenty-seven miles north of us is nothing. It's this big hill. And they coast in because they didn't see that last sign that says, get gas here because you won't have any for 27 (laughs) miles. And we have a bathroom, which is very, very busy. So they come in when their tanks are on empty and their bladders are on full and they're falling asleep and they need coffee from our espresso shop. So we're (laughs) in a great place.
2: You are in a great place. Wow. And they
0: they used to call me Mobile Dave because it's a mobile station and I'm Dave. But – now they oh. call me Caregiver Dave.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a different, uh, different thing, I guess. Um, tell me about when you met your wife.
0: Well, you're going way back now. This was back in 1974. And it's an interesting story. I've told it many times because people seem to like it and they laugh a lot. Uh, we have an hour, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, just out of wondering how much to say here. So I first met the husband of my wife before I actually met my wife.
2: Oh, They've
0: been married for 10 years and I was a sailor in my teenage years. I still am most of my life. And I used to put together sailing trips to Santa Catalina Island, you know, the Mm. Island of Romance. Mm. And we used to leave from Marina del Rey and it takes Eight hours to sail there because sailboats are very slow. Wow. And we would leave at midnight. I'd rent the boat for 48 hours, and it would take eight hours, nine hours sometimes to get there. And then we would spend the next day or so farting around on the island. And then we would leave about noon and get home when the sun is setting. It's very, very romantic. And I was putting together this trip. And the only person who could seem to sail with me, I also owned a catamaran. So i that's like right on the water. It's wet, it's exciting, it's invigorating, it's adventuresome. And it's hard to find people because I was in college and I had a, a good schedule. But most people had a nine-to-five job. But this guy who had uh, like a garage business, garage sale business, kind of like Sanford and Son, you know, his his house was a perpetual garage sale and he could leave anytime he wanted. He he used to go um, sailing with me a lot because he knew one of the employees at my dad's station. A lot of them the people I go with are gas station people because that's all I knew. Mm-hmm. And one time he says, can I bring my wife on this Catalina trip? I says, yeah, sure. And I'm only like 19, 18, and he's like 10 years older than me, and his wife was 10 years older than me. And so I meet her for the first time. Her name is Charlene and i i don't look at her with romantic eyes cuz she's just this older woman and in the in the 70s i mean we don't trust anybody over 30 <laughs> right you know so fast forward now 2 years i'm putting together another sailing trip over at my friend's house and charlene is like over there i didn't even notice her and she's overhearing our conversation we're putting on a sailing trip and she says i want to go sailing I look over there and I say, do I know you? You look familiar. She goes, Charlene, Charlene, John's husband, ex-husband, ex-husband. Yeah, we've been divorced two years. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Don't be. He was a jerk. So, <laughs> and I hadn't seen John in two years. So I says, uh, you went with us one time, right? And She says, yeah. And I says, did you get sick? She goes, no. I says, okay, you can come. And so <laughs> eight of us went sailing. Oh, but before we went, I get this phone call from Charlene. And I'm like, I'm 19. I think I was 19. Maybe I was 20. And so she's 30. She's divorced, newly divorced. And we're going sailing in a week. And she calls me up. I don't even know where she got my number from. Probably my friend. And she says, hey, I just wanted to invite you over to dinner. I'm a gourmet cook. Well, I didn't know what gourmet meant because I was just a kid and my I'm Syrian. My, both my parent, grandparents from both sides of my family are from Aleppo, Syria, Sounds which nobody knew where that was until ISIS started destroying it.
2: Hmm.
0: So hmm. the only food that I grew up with was Syrian food, Middle Eastern, and I hated it. <laughs> <And> they they <laughs> used to make me stay at the table till it was all gone, you know, and it, would, it takes a long time to slowly give it to the dog or you can only go to the bathroom so many times and, you know, get rid of it. <laughs> But, uh, so gourmet, Hmm. didn't know what that was, but I was afraid to ask because I didn't want to seem like a fool, but it was a free meal. And the only American food we ate was when my mother would, uh, burn a steak or a hamburger because my father liked his meat well done. Hmm. So that was my palate, Syrian food that makes you gag and burnt meat. (laughs) So. I figure I'm clueless. Like everybody loves Raymond. Remember that first episode where he's the futon salesman and Deborah's like hitting on him left and right, and it's just all going over his head. <laughs> that was me. So I'm still sh- I I'm showing I show up at the door, ringing the doorbell. Still don't know why is this woman inviting me over for dinner. So the door swings open, and I get hit with this this aroma. Many aromas actually. One was something cooking which I know what Syrian food cooks like and it smelled nothing like that. This smelled really good. <laughs> and Which I like Syrian food today, but that took a while. And then I smelled her perfume, which I understand later now is, is, is Giorgio. Oh. And then um, there was incense burning, you know, it was the 70s. And then I noticed that uh, the lights were very low. There was candles flickering and uh, Nat King Cole was singing in the background. And then all of a sudden, everything froze, like you're watching the the movie, and and everybody is frozen except for the main character. Mm. And this was like a split second that the, all this freezing lasted. And I said to myself, oh, my God, this is a date. <laughs> and then I panicked because I says, oh, my God, do I want to be on a date with this woman? And so I quickly checked her out from top to bottom, and she was wearing this muumuu thing, you know, like a Hawaiian. It was the 70s. And... And she looked pretty good all of a sudden, the first time I noticed. And, I, and then I says, I can do this. And then reality came back, you know, at half a second. And then she says, oh, you're going to enjoy the dinner. It's an eight-course meal. We're starting with stuffed caviar mushrooms and stuffed Cornish game hens. And by the end of the evening, there was some kind of dessert that was stuffed with something. And, and I was stuffed at the end <laughs> of the night. And so I saw a side of her that I had never seen before. So we went sailing the following week. And we just talked and talked and talked for that eight hours and got to know each other, did the getting-to-know-you dance, and the rest is history. Uh, on the way back, we hit some some rough weather, and uh, I had to go uh, to the island and find this old salty guy to get some advice on how to sail back in 10-foot swells and 30-mile-an-hour winds because I didn't want to go, but my, my crew was going to mutiny because they needed to get back to work or they would get fired So it was a rough ride back, and uh, one by one, everyone got green and seasick, and I was watching my girlfriend just shivering, turning green, and I said, oh, my God, she's never going to want to go out with me again. But she did. Uh, We got her back safe, and she said that she knew she would get back safe. She trusted the captain, and and so that made me feel good because I had never been in a storm that big before, and I was scared myself oh. So that's how I met her. That's how we got together. We've been together 45 years now. Wow. And, you know, 20, half of it was normal. We raised three daughters, got them all out of the house, got them all married, each one twice. <laughs> and we now have uh, seven grandchildren. Wow. And by, just about the time that we were supposed to be entering into the emptiness phase of life, you know, where kids are gone. We have uh, all this freedom and... Uh, Finances and no responsibility, no kids leaving behind to wreck the house while we're gone,
2: yeah, my wife complained. Something happened right?
0: yeah, my yeah. wife complains to me about the headache that she had for three days. Uh, you know we didn't think much about it at first, I mean, it was only a headache, everybody mm. gets headaches.
2: everybody gets headaches,
0: but by the fourth day, she never got a headache, by the way, you know, some people get migraines, not her. By the fourth day, I'm at work at the gas station, she calls me, I say hello. She goes, Dave, call an ambulance. And I didn't realize at the time that, that those would be the last words that she would ever speak. Wow. Because by the time the ambulance arrived, it was too late. The woman I loved had suffered a massive stroke, left her severely speech impaired, paralyzed on the right side. And in that moment, I was no longer just her husband. I had become her husband and her caregiver. In yeah. the next 2 years, that was 22 years ago, so the next 2 years was like a living hell for both of us. And you know, I started experiencing the things that uh, all caregivers experience, the uh, the complaints, uh, you know, the guilt I was never doing it good enough and and the uh, the overwhelm, you know, there was never enough help and the isolation. Nobody knew how I was feeling. I was all alone. And the, um, the hopelessness. Like I felt like I was sentenced to, a, uh, to life in caregiver prison and there was no way out. Yeah. And thank God that somebody invited me to a caregiver support group. Now, I didn't even know what a caregiver was. I didn't know what a support group was. But I was so desperate, I just went. And everything changed. I found hope. And I learned that if I didn't put my oxygen mask on first, like the airlines tell us that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, um, before you put your loved ones on that, you're going to, you're going to die. You're going to burn out. You're going to do whatever. And I'm thankful for all of that because when, um, it helped me to help my wife get through her grief because there's a grief process took a couple of years, right. wasn't pretty. And, uh, she finally reached that stage of grief where, um, you know, she embraced her new normal and reached the acceptance part of it. And she decided, well, I'm still alive. God must not be finished with me yet. And, and so now she still couldn't talk at the time, but she could communicate non-verbally, you know, through Pictionary and Charades, two games I hate, by the way, but (laughs) I suck at, but I'm learning, still learning to, to do it. And she still couldn't, uh, walk but I bought her electric wheelchair and it goes wherever she wants and we travel the world and, and we've been to many countries, many states you know I'm speaking now uh, and she uh, anyone who meets her for the first time is like amazed at how she just has a smile on her face and um, joy in her heart and they, she just makes us normal people look like whiners and complainers you know <laughs>
2: Yeah. So how well you said it took a couple of years for you all to kind of yeah accept right. And I'm sure like yeah, that we're
0: both going through the of grief.
2: Evil. Yeah. yeah uh, she lost different-
0: her body. I lost my wife.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So once you reach that stage of acceptance, um, how did you begin to assemble this new unexpected life?
0: How did I learn? (laughs) By making lots of mistakes, you know. In those days, there weren't many caregiver support groups out there like there are today, uh, online and stuff. Uh, We had to drive to a hospital at at a certain time and a certain day of the week, and and we had to, you know, the caregivers went in one room, and the uh, we went to a stroke uh, stroke survivor group and a slash caregiver group. So she went in the room with all these stroke people and she was very young when she had her stroke, uh, 52, that's kind of young. Wow,
2: that is young.
0: It isn't young when you're when you're 30, but when you're uh, you know, when you're older, she is 10 years older than me. So uh, I was 42, she was 52. And she didn't really like her group because they were like 80 and 90 and just old people yeah. and she's like this young, attractive bubbly person it was hard for her to be bubbly but uh normally she's bubbly but she would go and tolerate it and then because i got to go to the to the um caregiver side and it was so funny they would they would both complain about each other you know she would complain and the other strokeys uh survivors they call them about how terrible their caregivers treat them and how mean they are and, and they won't let them do this and they won't let them do that you know, it's tough love. But, mm-hmm. uh, it's all about perspective, and then of course we would complain to to each other about how our loved ones are just unreasonable and unappreciative, and mm-hmm. you know they don't understand uh, all the the uh, the balancing act that we're doing. So it, it was kind of funny, but it felt good to vent off of people who were just like us, who were going through the same problems as us, and and it you know we identified so it it felt good and it it helped us to get advice from people who'd been a little further down the road well you know you can't do that you know you got to you got to put your needs first you got to have boundaries you know all the things that they tell you that we weren't doing we were just making mistakes and feeling more and more miserable and we were both feeling miserable because when you're fighting you know you're both uh not happy
2: yeah so when did you think I really want to share my story and help other people who might be facing the situation in their own families. When did you become,
0: uh, when did you
2: become care? Yeah. Caregiver caregiver
0: Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after I started um, learning that I had to take care of me first and uh, putting down rules to my wife because she was, uh, you know, She's a very independent woman, and you have to ima- imagine she's a 30-year-old woman when we got married, two kids from a previous marriage, five-year-old, 12-year-old, um, gourmet cook, I mean, very independent. She was an entrepreneur herself. She was an interior decorator. She was, um, uh, she was an arts and crafts person, I like to say. She was a cross between Martha Stewart and Wonder Woman. Wow. So, but she wasn't that way with her husband. Because her husband was a very domineering and controlling person, oh. you know he was cheating on her all the time, and I guess women know that, but they tolerate it because they feel like, you know, well, what can I do? I don't want to get a divorce. What am, what will I do? You know, what will I do for money? Where will I live? You know, the the battered wife syndrome. Because uh, the straw that broke the camel's back is he came home high on speed because he was doing all sorts of drugs. And I guess he just snapped and gave her two black eyes and a broken nose. And oh. and then he felt terrible the next day, begged for. for oh, your...
2: yes, they always do.
0: <laughs> you sound like you have some experience with that.
2: I have heard many, many <laughs> stories. Yes.
0: But she was strong. She said, no, no, no. Uh, you do it once, you'll do it again. You know, we all saw that Fair Fawcett story uh, where she burned her uh, husband in the bed because the law wasn't taking care of it or something like that. Yeah. And so she, she wouldn't, um, you know, she started going to church and stuff and he started uh, stalking her in church, telling all her friends how, you know, she should, maybe you can talk her into forgiving me, you know, uh, she's supposed to be forgive, uh, uh, forgive people, you know, in the church and this and that, just every, every manipulative tool. But she was strong. She just said, no. So he was, he started stalking her and, Started, you know, like slashing her boyfriend's tires and just doing everything to, to, because he wanted her back. Mm. And so when, when, uh, when we started dating, because I knew him before I knew her, right? He never, he never said anything. He never came by. He never slashed my tires. So it was, I thought it was kind of strange. I thought I was just being protected by God. But I guess, and he told me later on, uh, on his deathbed, he called, no he didn't call he told uh, one of my charlene's daughters his you know she saw him before he died and he says just tell david for me still chokes me up a little let me take a sip here tell david that i'm uh i'm happy that he that he took care of my wife and uh You know, sorry that everything happened the way it did. And, uh, you know, just very gracious of him. Hmm. And because, you know, I never really saw him, never really spoke. He would leave, since he's in the junkyard business, he would leave junky gifts on the doorstep at Christmas time and he would just drop them off and leave, you know. So he wasn't a very good father either. But um, he died, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. Uh, Didn't take care of himself but did I answer your question? I got sidetracked there. Uh, no,
2: when did I didn't. know
0: that I was going to be David? <laughs> how,
2: all right. How did you decide to <clears throat> can, take your story and uh, share it with the world?
0: Well, I guess it started when my wife started getting better and started uh, becoming more independent, becoming more like her old self again. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, she started becoming independent. You know, she, today she cooks the meals gourmet meals She put on a dinner party I don't know how she does this with one arm and one leg uh, and no words you know and she does the laundry she does the dishes I mean I help when I can but I come home from work and I look around everything's done and I I wonder where the elves are who helped her (laughs) and and so it gave me a lot of independence so uh, I started taking my own advice and you know started uh, doing the hobbies and interests the things, so that I don't get burned out you know, I like to bike ride. So I used to go to Mexico twice a year to ride from Rosarita Beach to Ensenada. I joined Toastmasters to learn, you know, sharpen my speaking skills. I was singing at the senior center um, for lunch uh, for three years, uh, once a week. And I must have been good enough because they never threw their lunch at me. (laughs) And so at first, you know, she was a little resentful that I was doing all of these things. And I says, honey, I've got to, you know, I've got to take care of me first because if I go down, we both go down. And she's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I says you can come with me if you want. No, I don't want to go. So I said okay. Well, you know, I'm just put, putting boundaries in, tough love, and and just encouraging her to. And even the um, the occupational therapist said that I'm very uh, good with her because when she wants something from the top shelf, you know, her mother who used to live with us temporarily while she was recovering would always get, Oh, let me get that for you. You know, where mm-hmm. I would say, no, 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 you can get it. Come on, stand up, stand on your toes. I'll push you a little. Yeah. You're almost there, you know? And, and they used to think I was mean, but see, I, I turned her into an independent woman. Her mother would yeah. have turned her into an invalid. Yeah. So it started by me writing a book and the book was uh, one arm, one leg, 100 words overcoming unbelievable hardships. Mm-hmm. I joined this group cause my friend, we had him over for dinner for one of those dinner parties. And he said he was writing this book he says, I've been writing a book for like 20 years. He says, no, no, I went to this, this, uh, this mastermind group and, and they taught me how to write a book in 30 days. I says, I need to write a book in 30 days. So I got involved with them. I wrote the book in 30 days. It's amazing. And, and it started selling. And then um, the next year I wrote a second book about my gas station, Getting Hosed, Secrets, Confessions, and Tales of a Gas Station Owner. <laughs> and I was going to write my third book for caregivers uh, the third year but my friend who's a New York times bestselling author begged me to take my time and don't write it in 30 days, you know, because uh, a real publisher should be publishing this one and you need to share it with the world and take your time. You know, it needs to be at a higher level. Not that mine wasn't a good level, but you know, they can be a little snobby in the publishing business. You know, <laughs> they don't want it to look like a self-published book, you know, and they don't want it to feel like a self-published book and they want it to be edited like, you know, 20 times and, and go over with a fine tooth comb. So I did it. And a couple of times I got impatient. I was threatened to just, just write a book, you know, because my people need to hear it. And so I started a website. I had the, the book book finally came out. Uh, uh, what's it called? It's my life, life too. Thank you. Reclaim your
2: caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. That's
0: my book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's my life too. Dang it. You know, it has a picture of me sailing on the ocean just letting them know, Hey, you know, what did you used to do? You should still be doing it. And so then I started, uh, getting, uh, trained to speak. And so I spoke at Harvard and I spoke at the NASDAQ stock exchange and we got our pictures on the jumbotron and times square
2: jumbotron. And that's the so jumbotron
0: exciting. Yeah. And, and I got, but before that I went on television, um, I, I got uh, booked on 24 uh, morning shows, uh, you know, talk shows all across the country from Washington, D.C. to Honolulu, Hawaii on ABC, NBC, CBS and Fox. And the more I went on, the better I got. And so it just kind of exploded. We, we started going to Hawaii. We used to go to Hawaii all the time. but Then we kind of stopped going. And I learned that, hey, you know, life is short. We're getting older. My wife is 74 now. And. She can still travel. Who knows how long that will. We, we need to spend our children's inheritance, so to speak.
2: Exactly. You know, and have
0: fun <laughs> and, and because tomorrow is not promised. And so uh, we started spending two months in Hawaii, one month in the winter, one month in the summer. And uh, while I was in Hawaii, because my mentor taught me how to book myself on TV, and I can do it anywhere now. So I called up ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox in Hawaii, and I got on all four of them. And then I got to speak. I had some book signings in Barnes and uh, not Barnes and Noble because they couldn't do it; they couldn't get the books there in time. But I went to University of Hawaii and the Kapahulu Library, and I spoke at uh, seven different places and four shows. And then the following August, which was this last August, we uh, we spoke at five places, uh, including the University of Hawaii and some national conferences. And then I just got invited back to be the keynote speaker back at one of. Uh, the conference that I did because they enjoyed it so much. So I take Charlene to the places where she wants to go that I'm speaking at, which are the fun places like Hawaii, New York, um, Nashville. You know, we have family in all of those places, but she doesn't want to go to Des Moines, Iowa or Roanoke. Oh,
2: come Linda. on, why not? Uh,
0: I don't know. <laughs> I've but never I been there, her. So the last I like time you. I was in Des Moines, Iowa, guess who was in town? It was the New York City Ballet. And they were playing at the university, and I told her about it over the phone, and she goes, no, no, don't go without me. And I says, honey, you could have been to uh, Des Moines, (laughs) Iowa, but you chose not to. I'm going to the ballet tomorrow because when will I have the opportunity to see the New York Ballet again in my lifetime, you know? And it was amazing. So um, I just realized that there are so many caregivers out there who are dying. 60% uh, get sicker and need a caregiver themselves. 30% will actually die before their loved ones do. So I got the website. Now it's a membership website for $97. You join it and you get everything that I've done for the last six years. All my content is there. And wherever I talk, I talk about uh, how caregivers need to be selfish in order to survive this thing called caregiving because they are so unselfish, selfless, that they have to move that pendulum more toward the selfish side and selfish can't be a dirty word for caregivers you look in the dictionary it sounds like I don't want to be selfish because you know they don't say have anything nice for selfishness in the definition but they need a special definition for caregivers <laughs> that it's, it's okay for caregivers to be selfish
2: well self-care is not selfish you know you have to uh, one of the best analogies I ever heard was that you should fill your cup to overflowing so that you can serve from the saucer
0: oh that sounds good yeah. I, like I think I'll steal yeah. that.
2: There you go. So now for the really important question. Yeah. What is Caitlyn Jenner really like in
0: person? Well, you know, Bruce was a three-time gold medal winning decathlete, and that officially declares you the greatest athlete in the world. Mm. And And watching him, her, up there – because she's still very tall, and still very muscular, and yeah. still very strong. And, she, you know, she says, hey, you think I wanted to do this? I mean, I'm, I'm 68 years old. Uh, I had it made. I'm the most popular guy on earth. I'm wealthy. I married a Kardashian. I had my own reality show. I got beautiful kids. You think I wanted to just throw all that away at the age of 65. He says, I've been trying my my mother's clothes on since I was eight years old. And and every now and then the kids catch me cross-dressing. And, you know, I just couldn't live a lie anymore. I couldn't do it and I won't do it. And uh, that was more important to me than everything else. And so I gave her a copy of my book because her parents are now getting older Mm -hmm. and she's a little concerned that they're going to need care. And he said he counseled with his pastor, and I says, because we're on stage together, you know, uh, fielding questions from the audience and stuff, and so I had a chance to talk to him, her. <laughs> right. And, um, and so he says that uh, he counseled with his pastor before he did this, before he transitioned. transitioned. Mm-hmm. And um, I says, well, what did your pastor say? And he said he told me that Jesus would love me no matter what I did or no matter who I was.
2: Mm-hmm. And I says,
0: "Well, that's pretty good advice, you know." And he was dating uh, a girl coincidentally that I knew. Um, my my partner's daughter's best friend was a best friend of this person before that person transitioned. Yeah, and so he's dating a twenty-one-year-old. A boy who transitioned to a girl, and she's gorgeous. She's dropped dead gorgeous. When I saw her, I said, "That's not a, that's not a boy." Until I said, "Hi, I'm so and so," and she said, "Hi, I'm Sophia." I said, right. Oh. Well. Okay. So that confused me a lot, you know. But my job is to just love people, and you know, let God deal with it. So. Right. Hopefully I answered your question as graciously as I could. But um, Caitlyn Jenner is a very nice person. I was very impressed. She's very gracious, very real, very genuine. Um, There's nothing fake about her. Uh, See, but apparently living as Bruce, she felt like a a fake, a fraud, a liar. And... You know, there's babies born with a penis and a vagina, and the the doctor and the parents have to decide which organ to remove. Sometimes they pick the right one, sometimes they don't. Mm. So, I mean, if that can happen, that freak of nature, then certainly a child who's uh, a female with female organs can have uh, too many male hormones, and uh, a a boy child can have too many female hormones. So, I mean, these things kind of get messed up and um, you know at first I used to think that it was just uh, the environment and and uh, you know external things but there's something definitely internal going on with hormone you know even women during their change of life their hormones get all screwed up or uh, what happens you've seen older women who start growing beards and mustaches and they got to get electrolysis I mean that's hormones so you know I don't pretend to be an expert on the situation all i got to do is commanded in the Bible to love your fellow person. And that's what yes. I try to do.
2: Good even, advice.
0: Even Caitlin Jenner is concerned about caring for her parents when they get elderly.
2: Yeah, I think it's kind of a universal concern and more so now it seems, and maybe it's just because I'm getting older and I know a lot of people who have, you know, aging parents, but uh, it does seem like there's more of an issue these days I don't know why
0: yeah because we live in a strange world (laughs) and uh, we can't even go to a ball game without getting into a fight with somebody about politics so you know
2: Mm. yeah so we're at the point in the program now where I have to ask you what is one book or resource besides your own that changed your life that you would recommend to others
0: well when I was a teenager um Let me go back. When I was 12 years old, uh, was it 12? It was when I went into seventh grade. I remember coming back from from um, the summer, and all of a sudden, everybody that I'd gone to school with had changed. (laughs) You know, they all Ah, went from yeah puberty, (laughs) and the girls all of a sudden looked like women, and the boys like grew and had deep voices and had hair where they didn't used to have hair. And I, I kind of felt a little out of touch. I was still kind of a little boy, and and you know we've all been there. And they kind of make fun of the of the ones that don't mature um, as soon as the others. And that was like, that was a painful time, and and I was maybe I was bullied, maybe I was made fun of. I remember coming home one time and thinking I just want to die because I don't want to go through this. 12 years old.
1: Uh, Mm.
0: Obviously, I didn't do anything about it, but I remember thinking. And so suicides, uh, teenage suicides, are the leading cause of death among Mm -hmm. teenagers now. So uh, many people are, you know, they're sophisticated. They know how to kill themselves. There are many ways to kill yourself. Sadly, Mm -hmm. Uh, Back in the old days, you know, we were stupid. We didn't know how to do it. But um, I just remember... Um, into my teen years, because that stays with you, those insecurities and those inferiority complexes. When I was 16, you know, and I started to become, you know, more savvy and starting to like girls and stuff like that. I was a late bloomer. I needed something to build my confidence because I just, I was afraid to pick up the phone and ask a girl out and anything like that. So there was a book Back in those days, it helped. And it's not in print anymore, but you can get it on Amazon. It's called Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz, MD. He was a plastic surgeon. And he used to get requests for, you know, smaller noses, smaller ears, different eyes, different mouth. And he would say, you know, you're beautiful. You don't need to do that. Mm. And he, would, he, he became a psychologist saying, realize it's the image of the person in their mind, that is making them ugly. It's not reality, so to speak. Same with, you know, anorexia and stuff. They look at themselves, right. they think they're fat and, and really they're skinny. And so um, that book helped me a lot. It, it gives some techniques of how you can in, improve your self-image. As I got older now as an uh, entrepreneur, um, the great book by Napoleon Hill, uh, think, and Grow Rich, think and Grow Rich, awesome mm-hmm. book. If you have uh, entrepreneurial inclinations, because entrepreneur entrepreneurs really are born i don't believe that they can you can learn how to be one. Uh, maybe you can if you're borderline, but you know there's two kinds of people in the world those who who want to just get a check and it's always there You don't have to worry about it. you know a job a j o b those that just want more they don't want to work for anybody, they want to make their own hours they're willing to go and take the risks. Of you know a few months going broke where the employees are making more than they are, which you know has happened to me many times, and the time where they, they do really well, and that's why America does well and capitalism does well because it's every man for themselves, and and uh, you know why socialism doesn't work where man is good, you know he wants to share, he wants to help his fellow man, no he's not. The Bible says man man is evil and greedy, you know, and that's why capitalism works and socialism doesn't. Mm. So those are the two books that I can recommend.
2: All right. So, Dave, what is your definition of success? What does your authentic first class life look like?
0: Well, most people would think it has something to do with finances, and maybe a a small part of it does because, you know, there are a lot of billionaires and gazillionaires who are unhappy. Uh, Anthony Bourdain. Man, I wish I was him. Oh, yeah. Good looking. He's got hair on his head. He gets to travel all over the world, eat these exotic uh, dishes from everywhere, and have a camera crew, crew follow him. You can't turn on the TV without seeing all these episodes. He must have been on the air for years, all the reruns and stuff. And yet there was something about him that he wasn't happy, and he just yeah. wanted to end his life like, like I did when I was 12. And so success is more than money. Um, I believe success, number one, and I read the Bible a lot. So I think it's being content, being content with what you have, you know, being thankful for who you are, where you live, and anyone in America should be content because most of the world uh, is living in squalor and poverty. I mean, we're so rich, we throw water on our front yard to make it green, and we're so rich, we have a a room in our house just to house our clothes And, and another Big room to house our car, and I mean, come on, there nobody is poor in America. Even if you're under the freeway underpass, you know, uh, be, taking food out of a trash can. Number one, part of that is is a choice because there's opportunity. If you stuck Donald Trump in that same underpass, you know, and and uh, took away all of his money, I guarantee you, in a year, he'd be back on top again because there's opportunity. In America. So success is just being, um, having a great self image of yourself and believing that you can do anything and being content with what you have and not complain about what you don't have. No victim mentality.
2: All right. Now you have a radio show, a podcast, a membership website, you're a speaker and a caregiver. You're a busy guy. Oh, and and I gas forgot, station. and a gas station owner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if people want to find out more about you and your work, maybe join your Thrive community. How can they do that?
0: Just one place, and you don't even have to remember it because I my name is Dave. You got to remember that I'm Dave, and you got to remember that I'm a caregiver. So go to caregiverdave.com, and it's all there. There's even a couple free gifts for you if you click the "Get My Free Gifts." And then, uh, you know, check it out. And there's a lot of freebies there that you can check out and see if if this will help you. Of course, it will help you. It's support. Every caregiver needs support. And join it. I encourage you to join it because I used to um, coach people free. And guess what? They don't appreciate the wisdom because we put a value on things by how much we spend or how much it costs us or how much skin we have in the game. If you have a doctor appointment, uh, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. and you get to bed late tonight and then you know the alarm rings and, and it's like 6.30 and you say, oh, I don't want to go see the doctor. But if that doctor is going to charge you $100 anyway, whether you show up or not, I guarantee you, you're going to be there. And too many people uh, get free coaching. They say they're going to call at a certain time. They don't call. It's just like the doctor appointment. So that's why I charge a very affordable $97 one-time fee For this website, it's not because I need the money; it's because they need to pay. Because if they pay for that wisdom, and there's tons and tons and tons of wisdom on this website uh, with videos and blogs and articles and you name it, then they're going to have value. It they're going to make it a priority and they're going to implement it in their life because they paid for it. Mm. And that
2: is a good value: ninety-seven dollars just one time. The rest of your
0: life, my gosh! You know what? If if their loved one needed ninety-seven dollars, they would gladly write the check because. They're at, the, they're at the bottom of the totem pole, right? They're last. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is first. Well, you got to put yourself at the top because, like the airlines say, if you go down, who's going to take care of your loved one? They'll put that's them in right. a nursing home. Is that what you want?
2: Yeah, that's right. So what's next for Dave Nassani?
0: <sighs> what is next? Whatever God wants. You know, I didn't plan this myself. Uh, the last 18 months, if you asked me 18 months ago, And showed me everything that I'm doing and have done and have accomplished uh, and the influence that I'm making in people's lives, I say, are you crazy? (laughs) There's more of a chance of me becoming an astronaut and going to the moon. But God opens a door, you walk through it, he opens another door, you walk through it, he opens two doors, you walk through it. So I have no clue what's coming up but I guarantee you it'll be good and it'll be better than what's going on and it'll be what I was born to do and it's my destiny. And whatever it is, uh, I will be equipped to do it, and I'm just excited to do it. And I, I can't even guess what it is because the Bible says that that we won't even be able to imagine the good things that God has in store for us. So I'm not going to waste my energy trying to figure out what it is because he's done a good job so far. I'm going to just let him keep driving my car and quit throwing him in the backseat and driving. He's my chauffeur. I let him just go where he wants, and I stop saying, hey, hey. Are we supposed to turn here? <laughs> oh, Wait a minute! No, I think you you missed that. And he looks at me. I said, okay, sir.
2: <laughs> well, I've already put him in. Lesson. I've
0: already put him in the back seat a few times. So now he's staying in the front seat. I got him duct taped to the to the front. He's not leaving. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Dave Nassani, all the best to your lovely wife. Thank you, Dave. The caregivers caregiver. Thank you so much for sharing with me today.
0: Thank you. You were delightful. You run a good show and a tight ship. Good for you. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> bye bye.
1: First Class Life Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler. We'll be right back. Back to the show. First Class Life Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler.
2: I believe all of life's experiences are leading us somewhere. That might be to a new line of work and expression of our purpose, or it might be to just a better understanding of ourselves and a different outlook on our lives. Dave certainly found a great way to move forward after his wife's stroke, and they seem to be living really full, rewarding lives and have made the most of their, quote, new normal. We recently had a health scare in our family. My sister-in-law had a brain aneurysm. It came out of nowhere, as these things often do. When it first happened, my brother-in-law sent us an article explaining what it was that said, one third of people who have this die, one third survive with disabilities, and one third will survive and be fine. So far, it looks like she'll be in that fortunate one third who will be fine, but it's been a very tough road for everyone. It's not pleasant to think about, but do you have any idea what you'd do if something like that happened to someone in your family? Someone for whom you might become the primary caregiver? How do you think you'd adjust to that type of new normal? This week, I was privileged to be a guest on Dave's podcast. We talked about how when this type of thing happens, often the new normal is that the primary caregiver can't continue working the same job or the same amount of hours they might have been doing before. They may need to think of other streams of income that can enable them to devote the time they need to the caregiving. I made an offer to Dave's listeners that I will make to you too. I have a 90-minute consultation for which I normally charge $497. It's a personalized look at how you can create one or more streams of income doing something you love or with what you already have. If you send an email to me at firstclasslife@outlook.com with the subject line caregiver and mention where you heard about the offer, I will give you a $300 discount. So the price will only be $197. You'll do some exercises ahead of time, and you'll get a copy of the ebook Finding Your True Calling. We'll get on the phone and talk through those exercises and do some brainstorming. You will leave with at least one idea and a concrete next step. 30 days later, we'll get on the phone again for 30 minutes, and we'll talk through what you did, what happened, and what to do next. I know how tough it can be when your life takes a turn you didn't expect. I also highly recommend Dave's caregiver website. It's a smoking deal at just $97 just one time for access to all of his content on an ongoing basis. If you are or know of a caregiver who could use some resources and support, that's the place to find it. I hope you'll join me next week when my guest will be John Rex. John had a big awakening when he almost died from a pulmonary embolism. As a result, he found the courage to pursue his dream. Until then, cheers to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to First Class Life Redefining Success.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of First Class Life Redefining Success with Kate Fessler. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit firstclasslifesolutions.com, on Twitter at Kate Fessler, and on Facebook at First Class Life Solutions. We'll catch you next time.
0: Thanks for
2: listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of EWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com.